Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and Vim, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Today in the studio, I'm joined by Allison Watson, who is the CEO of Woodard & Curran, an industry-leading water and environmental firm with more than 1,200 people serving communities and clients across the United States. Allison has more than 20 years of experience as an executive leader, an environmental consultant and project manager focused on water resource planning and water quality analysis. She has built her career working on and managing multidisciplinary teams to bring creative solutions to difficult problems. Allison, glad you've joined me in the studio today. When I look to the future of water, we, we get all kinds of interesting feedback. We know that much of the world is what you might call water distressed or stressed. And we find that so much of the, the world's fresh water is really combined in, in really just a few of the countries around the world. And a lot of is questionable and at risk. Here in the United States, when we think about our water and our water security, how should we be thinking about this, Allison? Is, are, we, are we in great shape? Are we in good shape? Are we in fair shape? I don't want to go below that. Tell us, how are we thinking about water in these United States? I'm going to give you the very specific answer of it depends on where you are to some extent. It's interesting as you travel throughout the country, there are certainly parts of the United States that are very water stressed. Um, and there are other parts that have the problem of too much water. And there are parts of the country that have both problems depending on the time of year. Um, and as you're probably aware one of the major issues that we have in the water space is also the state of our infrastructure. So it's a really broad and challenging question. And one that is just so relevant right now is, you know, we're watching the infrastructure stimulus package coming together and looking for um, what we can do to help to improve our water situation. But I do think we need to think about water as the lifeblood, really, of all that we do and essential to a high quality of life. And effective management of water as really the way that we can focus on improving quality of life throughout the country. And, and again, in some cases, that means managing too much water during some times of the year and managing critical water shortages in other times of year. So when I live in Atlanta, Georgia, where we have lots of water. You know, it seems like it rains here and it's, it's very green and lush and almost uh, semi-rainforesty in the summertime. The humidity is high and everything is brilliantly green. And then, you know, we see what happens in parts of California where it is crispy and dry and there's massive fires that occur and they just seem to be getting worse, spreading all the way up into the Northwest these days. And I wish we could take some of our water and give it to you guys out there in the West Coast. Is there is there any thinking, and maybe this is a crazy question to ask, but is there any thinking about a national water grid that would allow for the disposition of excess water into distressed areas? It's an interesting question. Um, so I'll say the short answer is not that I'm aware of, but 
it's surprising that it's not. Um, if you think about energy and you think about, for example, oil and gas pipelines, we really don't have the equivalent in the water space. We certainly, if you look at states, like if you look at California, where I'm sitting, for example, we have major federal water infrastructure projects, but nothing on the scale of what we've seen in other sectors. And it's fascinating because water is essential to life. Um, so the fact that we have subsisted on essentially, there are some desal facilities in operation throughout across the globe, but we've essentially subsisted on the same finite supplies of fresh water throughout our existence. And we have not really gotten to that scale of infrastructure development and planning. And I think it's actually time for us to be thinking on that scale to some extent. We really, the scale of challenges that we're facing related to climate change um, really demands that we're thinking on a different scale than we have been. I will say that in California, in some of the planning programs that I've been involved in historically, there have been some creative thoughts. You know, we, we've looked at things like towing icebergs, really interesting and out-of-the-box thinking, but not built infrastructure. And one of the challenges, I think, associated with a built infrastructure type solution is, again, when you're thinking about water, you're thinking about ecosystems. And so any new reservoirs, for example, or if you're inundating areas, there's the potential to create ecosystems and then also to damage or to take back habitat. And that's always a major consideration when you're looking at water projects. So in terms of a you know, major national type infrastructure program, I have not heard about that. There are isolated regional programs already in place. There's a lot of activity towards really hyper-local programs as well. So looking at reuse and conservation, even on-site reuse um, to really maximize efficiency with water, but not really the scale of program that we might see in, for example, the energy sector. That's an extraordinary thought. I was reading a paper recently that was published by the NASDAQ Global Index about water. It's an interesting place to be reading about water from NASDAQ. But they were saying that water, more than energy, fuels the existence of human society. Uh, fresh water resources that humans can easily access, such as rivers and lakes, only constitute about one 150th of 1% of the total water on Earth. They're saying that water, though ubiquitous, is a non-renewable, irreplaceable resource. It, it just seemed, just blew me away by how little we think about water. Maybe familiarity breeds contempt, you know, the idea that we, we always think we have water until we don't. And I've been deeply concerned as we look at the future of climate change happening around the world, and particularly in these United States, when we look at radically different weather patterns that are occurring, um, excessive rain in other areas and zero rain in other areas, and this idea of what you've just talked about, about water conservation and reuse is so becoming more and more and more critical to how we deal with ourselves as a society, Woodard and Curran spends time thinking about these things all the time, about how to engineer solutions for local communities and even helps to manage some of those solutions in those communities. Tell us more about what Woodard and Curran does to speak into this space. 
Um, sure. We're very focused on water and the environment. That's pretty much everything that we do touches water and the environment. Um, everything from providing regulatory permitting support through constructing facilities and operating them. So we have several clients throughout the United States, which are O&M clients where we operate water and wastewater facilities. Um, and we have on the other end of the spectrum, clients in the public and private sector where we provide planning, everything from you know planning and designing treatment and conveyance facilities through drought and climate change planning. So it's very much a part of what we focus on every day. The infrastructure legislation that's before the Congress you spoke of earlier, I had an opportunity to be in Washington, D.C. several weeks ago and was able to sit with some of the, we'll call it, decision makers and influencers around that bill. We had an extraordinary time talking about transportation, infrastructure, energy infrastructure, et cetera, and how critical this is to our country. And it didn't matter what side of the aisle you were on, uh, passing a viable and executable infrastructure bill is good for everyone. I don't care left, right, red, or blue. It's good for everyone. When we look at what is necessary for critical water infrastructure, one of the things that, of course, was front and center earlier this year, we saw where there was a potential terror threat against a water supply. How do you see or are you contemplating how water security it will be a part or not a part of this infrastructure bill? And uh, what should we be thinking about water safety? And I'm talking against nefarious characters. Oh, it's, it's a really important consideration, and it's something that um, we are very focused on, especially where we do SCADA, which is control systems for plants, as well as operating plants ourselves. What I will say is that when you look at the state of water infrastructure, it's not uncommon, and actually it's a, a fairly healthy replacement program for a typical water utility might be to replace 1% of the system per year. Now, if you take a step back, you're talking about replacing the system. It takes 100 years to replace all of that infrastructure at 1% per year. And, that, and that's a pretty typical healthy replacement program. And I can't think of any other area where we would find it acceptable to replace critical infrastructure at that slow pace. And if you think about the rate of change and advancement of technology in 100 years and the materials that we're using now compared to 100 years ago, it's just mind boggling. So really what, what I would say in the water sector is that we're, we're behind the ball in terms of technology adaptation and incorporating innovation into how we do things. And part of that is for very good reason. You know, water utilities are public health professionals. We have to make sure that redundancy and reliability and safety are at the, at the front and center of everything that we do. At the same time, there's an opportunity for our public sector partners to, I think, work in a different way with the private sector that enables the private sector to accelerate the rate of innovation and technology adoption and bring that to society so that we're able to make better use of the limited funding that's available through implementation and integration of technology. Now, what that would mean, you know, as we move forward, you know, additional automation and additional data analytics, once you start to go in that direction, of course, security um, and information security becomes a much bigger issue. So it's already a critical issue. And I'm aware of four cyber attacks on municipal water supplies this year already, 
that rate is only going to increase and it's going to increase at a faster rate um, as more utilities incorporate more automation and, and technology. And, and that's necessary for us to be able to keep up um, with the infrastructure needs and the operational needs and have water continue to be affordable. So it's right at the heart of everything that we need to do. So our intent at Woodard and Curran, we're very focused on cybersecurity and, you know, not just internally as an organization, although that has been a major focus, but also making sure that where we work on SCADA systems and where we operate plants, we're doing everything we can to make sure that they're protected as well, because it's a, it's a major target. And, you know, as public health professionals, our clients are absolutely concerned about this and focused on it. And we all need to be, but I do think we can't move forward at the rate we need to without further integration of automation and um, innovating in the water space. And it's just going to make the cybersecurity risk and need that much greater as we move forward. Well, really critical. I noted in the infrastructure investment bill that's in front of Congress, uh, at least the latest numbers I had, was a little over $100 billion in the massive multi-trillion dollar uh, proposal is toward water infrastructure investment. Is $100 billion enough to address the issues that we have in this country? It's, it's not enough, but it's a good start. I, I think generally water purveyors and people who work in, in water, one of the things that I actually love about it is the people who work in this space are just phenomenal and just high integrity people motivated to do good things, leave the world a better place and perform this wonderful service. And I think that we tend to be a bit humble. And so couple that with the fact that much of our infrastructure is buried and out of sight, out of mind. You turn on your tap and water comes out and it's safe to drink. And we take that for granted a little bit. I do think that there's a lot of opportunity for the water space to come together and be a bit more deliberate in how we work with Washington and how we actually communicate the value of water to our communities so that we can actually play a bigger part in the infrastructure discussion than we do. Because at the end of the day, yes, transportation infrastructure is critical, but you can live without transportation and you really can't live without clean water. And yeah, at the end of the day, it, it seems to generally be an afterthought. And I think part of that is, you know, it's on, it's on us. It's our responsibility as water professionals to do a better job of helping our communities to understand what the services that we provide, what the need is, and then coming together instead of this hyper-local or local focus, but coming together to really be able to make the case for additional funding to water infrastructure because it is so critical. And so while it's wonderful and we're all very excited about it, the need far exceeds the funding that's available even in this wonderful bill. So who who does represent the water? Is there such a thing? Can I call it the water industry? It, it just that seems kind of funny because it should be the human industry since we're one hundred percent dependent on it. Who represents the water infrastructure industry in Washington? Uh, there are various um, industry organizations that do have lobbyists, but you know, compared to, for example, um, energy sector. I would say it's much more fractured um, and it depends a bit on where you are in the country, how strong the representation is. But the primary representation is through some of the industry associations like the American Water Works Association and those sorts of, of organizations. Yeah. 
it's clear that we need a louder voice in this. We we must take care of the fundamentals before the things uh, that are secondary. And water is a fundamental to almost everything that we do, much less how we live. I was noting in the bill that's up before Congress, it's really not that much money is being put forward for the cybersecurity pieces of of this um, infrastructure bill. It's it's something that's somewhere between 25 and 35 million, not billion dollars a year for four years, which is, give me a break. It's 100 to 120 million dollars is not going to get us hardly anywhere when it comes to dealing with some of these complex issues of cybersecurity and the water systems. I'm guessing that the federal government is maybe doing a matching program. We'll put up some if the state and the local will put up others. I'm, I can only guess. I haven't read the entire bill, but it's a dramatic shortfall for something that is so radically essential to life and living where we are. So in the, the work that you've been doing, what would you say is some of the most meaningful work that you folks have done? Is there a project or two that point out to the meaningful work that, uh, that your firm has done in this space? Oh, it's going to be hard to pick, and I don't want anybody to feel left out. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. One thing that's been kind of interesting, and, and again, I'll, I'll be a little bit focused on California because I, I sit here, so it's easy for things to seem very meaningful when they're right near backyard. We have been a major player in the California groundwater legislation. So getting to your earlier question related to how do you think of water scarcity? Obviously, California, I think most people know, is an area where water scarcity is an issue. And in large portions of the state, such as the Central Valley, groundwater has been a major staple of agriculture and um, just domestic water use. And those groundwater basins are being overdrafted, which means there's more groundwater being taken out than naturally makes its way back to the basin. So over time, if you think of it like a bank account, that balance is declining and declining. And what happens when that balance declines and it's groundwater is you have impacts where wells go dry. For example, in disadvantaged communities where you might have shallower wells to begin with, those wells stop pumping. Um, you may have issues where ground surface starts to drop. So you actually have land subsidence where the ground, the ground elevation starts to sink and that can damage infrastructure or homes. Um, we have parts of the state where during drought, water has to be trucked in. Um, there's just no water supply. So water is trucked in and people have to drive out and fill bottles with water just for drinking and, and basic sanitation. And about five years ago, the state of California passed the first meaningful legislation really regulating or putting the state on a pathway to regulate the use of groundwater. And the goal is really to bring those groundwater basins into balance. So we're not depleting our checking account, if you will, anymore. Um, we're managing how much we're taking out and we're making sure that we're using that efficiently and recharging those basins to prevent some of those impacts. And Woodard and Curran has worked fairly extensively throughout California with individual groundwater basins on those specific issues. And those efforts have been really interesting because they've been very stakeholder focused, large public involvement processes, and a really, I think, nice first step in some respects towards what I was speaking about earlier and, and communicating the value of water and the reason it's important to do these things and the benefits to the communities and to the environment 
in, in taking these steps toward managing the groundwater basin, because just like water infrastructure that's buried is out of sight, out of mind, groundwater is a finite resource. Um, it's, it's replenished through natural percolation, but when you're pumping more than, than is being replaced, the average user doesn't have necessarily visibility into that. So there's the education component associated with, you know, what is happening in the groundwater basin that we can't see and how can we mitigate those impacts so that we we have a sustainable resource moving forward? And in particular, in some of those more disadvantaged communities, how can we do this in a cost-effective way? So I view that as, as a very you know, impactful program where we've been very, very involved in working both with the state um, as well as with local groundwater basins on trying to figure out ways to bring those basins into balance for the public and for sustainability. We also um, have several locations where we're working with local communities to operate their water systems. And there are, there's more than one example where, you know, we've come in and the system is, is struggling a bit to, to meet permit requirements and to implement the programs and projects that are really needed to provide a reliable supply of drinking water or to reliably treat and discharge the wastewater supply. And we've been able to come in and work with the local community to identify the improvements that are needed to bring the staff into the Woodard and Curran family and make sure that we're, we're turning those facilities and those systems into you know, the pride of the community. And we're giving back and investing in the local communities and, and using water as really the vehicle to do it. So there are just so many examples. One thing that's really special about Woodard and Curran is it's a very purpose-driven company. We actually even have a charitable foundation, the Woodard and Curran Foundation, which is funded through donations from employees and matched by the organization. But we give out charitable grants for water and environment projects every year. And it's just something that I'm so proud of because it makes such an impact. You know, we do it both in terms of the projects that we work on, but also our ability to fund this foundation and to give grants for needed and important water and environment projects as well. So we're doing so much, it's hard to pick a few examples, but there you go. It's so fantastic. I did have an opportunity to spend time with you and others on your team not so long ago when we did this strategic review of what you folks were moving toward. And I think the most impressive part of my time there was realizing you are real humans who actually like each other, which was kind of neat and refreshing, you know. And even though you're a pretty large organization, it just felt so familial and people getting along. And that seems like that's translating down into the day-to-day -day of the work and the way that people collaborate together to bring solutions as well as give toward helping communities and and those in need. It's a it's a fantastic uh, core set of values that the organization works by, and it, it was a privilege to get to spend that time with everyone. Thank you. So in the years to come, you've recently been placed as the CEO of the firm over this sometime in this last year. What are your dreams and visions for the future of the firm? Where are you going to take us? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. Well, first I'll start by saying I just – gushed about what a fantastic place Woodard and Curran is. And it's wonderful to have the honor and the privilege of, of being the CEO of this great firm. And we're performing very, very well. So it would be easy to come in and say everything's perfect and we don't need to do anything at all. 
But what we're really focusing on is how can we take the great things that we're doing and and scale our impact. The company was founded in 1979 in Portland, Maine. Um, We're now 1,200 people throughout the United States really doing this great work. And, And the focus that I would like to see us take is to look at all of the capabilities that we have. I mentioned previously, it's rare for a firm of our size to be able to do everything from funding and financing and regulatory support all the way through construction and operation and and maintenance. So the fact that we have this full range of capabilities, we have folks doing really interesting work from California to Maine to Florida. How do we really leverage the platform that we have to scale up our impact? So again, consistent with our mission and consistent with our values and trying to leave the world a bit better than we found it and to improve um, conditions for water and the environment, how can we most effectively take this platform and all the bits and pieces that we have, pull it together and mobilize? And so to that effect, we've spent this year working to articulate a purpose statement We have a wonderful mission, which was actually written by our founders, and our values are very strong, as you noted, um, although we hadn't taken the time to write them down. So we did that over the past couple of years. We didn't develop values. We wrote down the values that we live by. And this third piece we're, we're undertaking now is really just the third leg of the stool, which is taking that purpose that is inherent in everything that we do and putting words to it. We haven't put words to it. So we're we're going through the process of articulating our purpose, and we're also wrapping up a strategic plan, um, which we'll be rolling out internally in early next year, along with a brand refresh. So the goal here, again, is to pull all of these pieces together and think about with what we know about what's happening in the world around us and where we're likely headed in the 2030 timeframe and all of those challenges with water and environment how can we mobilize and really pull all of our efforts together towards achieving that that purpose and really furthering our mission and doing it in accordance with our values. And I did have somebody ask me, when I leave this role, what would I like my legacy to be? And (laughs) it was an interesting question because I don't have an idea of what I want my legacy to be, but I would like for the communities where we work to know who Woodard and Curran is and to associate the name with the wonderful things that we're doing in their communities and to really be able to have an impact down to the household level, you know, to provide that level of benefit around water and the environment that, you know, our name means something to the average person in the communities where we're working. Wow. Well, that would be a legacy. If you can literally bring all of this science and engineering down to the vernacular that people realize my water is safe, my water is dependable and consistent. What we do for communities makes a difference. Wouldn't that be something fantastic? And that's the living out of the values of the firm. Congratulations on all that. And I'll look forward to watching the adventure as you continue to move through your career and we watch Woodard and Curran continue to succeed through its very meaningful and intentional strategy. Thanks for joining me in the studio today. This has been a delightful conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been wonderful. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This Is Design Intelligence, sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. 
The producer for This Is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.